Well, thank you very much. Um, and Bill, thank you for that. And um, thanks to the Civil Mediation Council for this invitation to speak. And thanks to my friend and colleague, David Richbell, uh, for you've done the honor by inviting me to do this. And it's, it's uh, been a lot of fun on the run up to this. So I'm gonna, and I'm gonna speak to you about that. I heard a story a few years ago about a guy who was invited to give a 10 minute speech and there were about 100 people in the audience and after about 15 minutes he noticed a few people trickling off and after 20 minutes he noticed more people leaving after a half hour there were just a few people left and at 45 minutes there was only one person left sitting right where David is and he said well I noticed everybody else has left how come you're here he said I'm the next speaker <laughs> so I'm gonna try not to run that risk um, So uh, at the onset of this, I just want to, uh, again, thank you for the invitation. And David asked me if I would speak a little bit about some hindsights that we might have on mediation in the United States. Uh, I'm not so sure that we're very far ahead of everybody else at all. We uh, have more people doing it. But um, I, I think um, it would, this has been a really interesting challenge to say, what is it that you might learn from our experience? And uh, I've spent a lot of time now talking with people. To, to do the, I could have opined on all this myself, which I've been known to do. But I actually used this as an excuse to do a big walkathon, talkathon, with about 25 mediators who have been doing this work for some 30 years. And many of these people were and still are the pioneers in the field. Um, so it was kind of a fun exercise. And uh, I got to reconnect with old friends, and I also got to talk to some people who I knew reputationally uh, over the years, people who were uh, very, very good, or at least well-known in their field of mediation in their particular areas. And um, I, so I would refer to this as kind of my sideways study. This is sort of an anthropology project, walking around studying the strange tribes of mediation in America. And uh, to do this, what I did was I actually sent out a survey, and you have all this in, in the booklet. I sent out a survey, uh, asked people to fill it out. It was a pretty painless survey. And then I asked if I might interview them and take about 20 minutes. And most of these turned into one-hour conversations. Um, and you know, this was really not a robust study. So uh, if I was presenting this in the academy, I would be barbecued or waterboarded or something. Something terrible would happen. Uh, and, and all the caveats are in the paper itself. Probably the one that people complained about most was the fact that I didn't give them permission to define mediation in the way they want. And I just assumed that everybody I was talking to did some version of mediation. And they were all pretty uh, bothered by that. And I said, uh, live with it. So <clears throat> in a moment, I'm just gonna share with you some of the, the, the what I've learned on this. And there's sort of five stories that that come out of all this. But I need to tell you also uh, just a, a couple of details. That of the 25 people that I actually wound up interviewing and getting the surveys from, the vast majority were private mediators doing commercial, court-referred, and family mediation. And of those, mostly in the commercial arena. And second of all, probably one of the salient things is that I asked them uh, what their style of mediation was. Facilitative, evaluative, transformative, narrative. And the larger preponderance of those people identified themselves as facilitative. 
And uh, I have no idea what those words mean anymore. <laughs> so uh, I suspect that the people are more facilitative than they think when they say evaluative and when they're evaluative. Uh, you know, I just, I think there's more confusion around this. And, but it was just interesting to hear how people identified themselves that way. And if there was ever to be a conversation amongst this 25 people, it would be a really interesting conversation to ask. So let me tell you briefly the five stories that came out, because that's what there are. There are there's sort of five stories that emerged from all this. And you can read the information yourself in the back from the comments, and you can say, well, Peter, there's some other stories in there, too. Uh, but there, there were sort of five. Uh, and, and frankly, I might say that this was all uh, listening to everybody and talking with everybody was uh, there were lots of goods and lots of bads. And I describe this as kind of a strange cocktail of flavors that we probably didn't order. But uh, looking back, that's what people were reporting, lots of mixed things going on. Uh, and it was a little bit like uh, reading Mark Twain, who was for war and against war and very boldly in favor of rich people and unabashedly supportive of poor people. And he loved God and he loved the devil. Um, he was very famously for alcohol and, of course, strongly against alcohol. And I'm going to say a little bit more about alcohol at the end of all this. Um, so talking to these mediators was, is like reading Mark Twain. It's sort of paradoxical um, and entertaining, for sure. So the first story. Um, with, with a few exceptions, most of the people I spoke with uh, talked about loss. Now remember, these are people who've been doing this for 25 or 30 years. And many of these were, uh, were and are pioneers in the field of mediation. Many of them have started programs. Uh, they're important people in their communities. They uh, have good reputations and so on. But with a few exceptions, most of them talk about some sense of loss of first principles. Um, they, one of them said, mediation doesn't, no longer looks like what we imagined. People now see it as a numbers game. Uh, and someone else described it as a race to the bottom, the bottom line of separate meetings, damages, remedies, just move the case. A set of expectations that seems to be coming from lots of different corners. So that was, the, that was kind of a piece of this. Uh, and around that sits the story of institutionalization. Um, as it has become institutionalized and legitimated and respectable, mediation looks and feels different to this cohort of people. Um, some of the core values and premises that seem to shape our ideas at the beginning seem to have eroded. Well, what are those? Volunteerism and coming to the table. The idea that people can be the architects of their own solutions and they don't need a cadre of professionals to tell them what to do. Uh, the idea that they could actually negotiate and come to principled agreements. Those ideas, there was a sense in this group of loss around that. And that's the essence of the story, story one. That mediation has changed in response to lots of imperatives, lots of bureaucratic imperatives, the workings of the marketplace, the workings of the court. And most think it's gotten worse. Most think it's, it's gotten worse. Most of the people I spoke with. Second story is the pull and the power of the courts. Uh, I was thinking about this, remember the movie Star Wars? Remember they had a tractor beam in there that sort of pulled things in? And I had this image when I was talking to some of my friends and colleagues uh, of the courts as a big tractor beam. <laughs> um, 
So of the people that I interviewed, almost all of them had worked in or around America's judicial systems. Many of them had been litigators, some of them were judges, some of them were court officials. Uh, some of them, like myself, had worked in the court systems. So these were not people who were not familiar with what goes on in courts. Um, and several of these people helped to set up very, very uh, well-known and uh, pioneering kinds of mediation programs. Um, so, so this pull, this magnetism of the courts has been the second story. It's been a powerful story in the, in the comments that were reported. Uh, and it's a story of sort of light and shadow and blessing and curse and yin and yang. Uh, and we know in this room, uh, as do all my colleagues, that judicial systems go to mediation for lots of different reasons. Some of them adopt it as an administrative strategy for reducing dockets. Some of them want to expedite certain kinds of cases. So courts also uh, are not the neutral machines. They have administrative reasons why they want to do this. Docket management, saving money, reducing time to trial. And uh, we also know that high volume programs uh, handle sometimes tens of thousands of cases. The Los Angeles court mediation program does 10 to 15,000 cases a year. And interestingly, one of the things that I heard here is that program is being abandoned, partly for budgetary reasons, but also because there's a sense of declining settlement rates and lawyers, you know, as you'll hear later, are seen as gaming that system. In other words, they go there, they don't do anything for lots of different reasons. And so that, that program is in jeopardy and may, go, may slip away. And it was one of the biggest and one of the, the most profound programs in the country. Um, and we know that courts do things in different ways. Some have in-court speediation programs where they're moving fast, small claims dockets. Some of them require everything to go to mediation, carte blanche. Some do uh, kind of a wholesale outsourcing to community mediators or to volunteer mediators who come out of the bar. Uh, some of them handle cases on their own, through their own internal court mediators. Um, and a few simply just encourage it. They, they have the power to persuade and push and nudge, and that's what they do. So most courts in the US have now adopted some form of mediation. That's certainly one of the big stories. But the mixed blessing coming out of this group is that mediation is now a, kind of a part of the culture of the courts. Uh, but part, they're, they're saying parties are very often uh, not screened. They're not given opt-out procedures. They're not given much support as they go into this process. And so it's a bit of a machine. Ambrose Bierce once described the courts and litigation as a machine in which you go in as a pig and you come out as a sausage. So uh, there's some fear that mediation may take that route and become just a sort of a big machine that is working on cases. I'm telling you this because this is uh, from the, the regrets and comments from very seasoned people who've been doing this for a long time. The flip side of the court story is that it's also created a thriving marketplace, particularly for the high-end cases. If, they, if people, litigants believe that they need to go to mediation, they're gonna probably go find that on their own if they can afford it. And that has created something similar to what I heard here. There's a small group of mediators doing very high-stakes cases, uh, and they don't have any problem finding those cases. So kind of a mix, again, and sort of a bit of a mixed blessing. Story number three is about lawyers. Uh, and again, I would say three quarters of the people I spoke with are lawyers. And the others, 
like myself who are not lawyers but have worked in court systems. Uh, and if we can think of ownership as dominion and domain, uh, the story is that lawyers increasingly own mediation, much to the chagrin of some non-lawyers. And with that comes the marriage of the adversarial skills training uh, into the practices of negotiation, settlement, conflict resolution. Um, at, at conferences and other mediation gatherings, not a few attorney mediators often introduce themselves as recovering lawyers. Hi, I'm a recovering lawyer. I don't know if you've heard that here, but we hear that regularly. I hear that regularly. And um, it, it, mediation has been a pathway, I think a very optimistic and hopeful pathway for attorneys who are looking for a better way of doing things, who have felt the toxicity of so much conflict and they're really looking for something better to do themselves and do something uh, that they feels more constructive in their own lives. And I don't say that disparagingly because I think a lot of litigation is constructive. Um, so most of the people in the interviews mentioned two problems with lawyer engagement. And the first one is a takeover. There's been a sense, not of a, some conspiratorial takeover, but a slow growth uh, of the, uh, and a slow ad adoption of mediation into the legal profession. And the second one is the problem of gaming. And I heard this over and over again. Uh, mediators who are working with attorneys talk a lot about getting games by both lawyers as well as insurers. It's a recurrent theme in these interviews and a recurrent problem that I'm actually hearing here in England too. So, uh, and it takes lots of forms. So one is using mediation as a kind of a free piece of discovery, a free peek at the other side's case. Um, another one is insisting that clients never meet face to face. It's about control of the clients um, and consigning the mediator to simply shuttling back and forth. And I've seen that in Honolulu and I've seen that in other places where the, the lawyers are, have written the rules of the mediation in such a way the clients will never come together, they're in separate rooms and the mediator's gonna shuttle back and forth. Um, a third is having all the communication go through the attorneys. I don't know that these are all the norms, but this is what people are saying I'm seeing in my practices. Um, and I thought very poignantly one of the people I interviewed said, uh, you know, what he regrets most is the loss of the emotional work that he used to do with clients in mediation and the, the loss of focus on relationships and finding that humanity that the Reverend spoke about this morning. That seems to be not very present in the business and commercial and construction cases. And maybe that's natural, maybe it's not. But that surely was the third story about the domination of the legal profession. And I might mention that the, the, the biggest organization in the US, the biggest mediation organization is the American Bar Association's Section on Dispute Resolution, which has 17,000 members. So it's big, and I suspect of those 17,000 members, a lot of those are people who want to be mediators, haven't yet found their string, string of cases. Um, but this, again, this story is about some sense of loss and regret, uh, and the de-emphasis on relationship work that seemed so important 30 years ago. Fourth story is about the profession that isn't. Uh, major professions, medicine, law, engineering, and even some of what are called minor professions uh, uh, that are derivative, 
like planning and policy analysis and so on, they have certain things in common. Those, those, this is the sociology of professions. They have developed a reasonable body of specialized knowledge. They have evidence-based diagnostic tools. They have codified intervention procedures. They have a code of ethics. They have career pathways for new entrants into a field. They have some level of oversight, either self-regulation or public oversight, that reassures people uh, that there are consequences for those who are not good at what they do or are cheat or fail. Uh, and fields that have most of these things tend to be given some sense of occupational legitimacy. Um, so when it comes to the development of a real profession, the people I interviewed uh, hold contradictory notions, just as you heard here. And it's quite, quite okay, I think. But the notions were kind of important because some saw this 30 years ago as a social movement, as something that is going to be transformative of society. Not transformative in the sense of the transformative model, but we were going to change the way justice worked in America. Um, and it was going to change the way people sorted out conflict, uh, re restored some sense of justice in their own hands, and so on. And most of all, uh, there was a sense that in the beginning that I heard from these folks that people would be the architects of their own futures. They really didn't need to rely totally on lawyers, professional mediators, others, that they themselves would come to make decisions. And that still is true in mediation, but it seems to have uh, gotten lost a little bit or eroded or corroded. Um, and people talked about this not being able to develop a real sense of profession, a real field, if you will. Um, and what exists instead in the U.S. is lots of little micro marketplaces. People working in either geographic areas or sectoral areas or specific areas, whether it's family law or uh, you know, community problems or uh, whatever it might be. This, the, the, the work seems to be taking place in more micro marketplaces. It's not a big marketplace, it's lots of little marketplaces. Um, in the US, there are lots of certification proposals, lots of standard setting proposals, and there are some, there are codes of ethics that have evolved, but there's no big consensus on these things. Um, so we have uh, lots of different organizations and groups and courts certifying mediators for their own purposes. Because we don't have a grand scheme. We don't have some unified scheme there. Uh, we have lots of different individual organizations, administrative law organizations, court organizations, uh, federal agencies, state agencies that have created their own rosters, have created some standards of practice, have invited uh, their own people to be on that uh, or others. Uh, and there's lots of examples. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, which zooms in after a hurricane, uh, they have a cadre of mediators. The Department of Interior, uh, which manages forests and environmental issues, they have a group. Uh, so there, there are lots of different groups that are certifying for their own purposes, but they're not certifying to work more broadly. Um, and that leads into this sort of missing piece. That, and how do you have a profession without some regulatory mechanism to do that? And yet, in the United States, we sort of failed in our conversation. People mentioned to me over and over again about how we've had 30 years of discussion about this. 30 years we've been talking about this stuff, and very little action towards something that would unify across a lot of different groups. Um, this doesn't mean we don't have certifications. Some of them are great. Uh, my friend Jim Malamud at Resource, Resourceful Internet Solutions has put together a certification system. Um, 
IMI, the International Mediation Institute, Irina could tell you about that, has developed a really interesting approach to this. So they're out there, but there's not a lot of consensus around it. So the overall story has been about what is missing. There is no one unifying professional platform that can hold all these diverse styles and applications and practices together. And that has been one of the yearnings in this group. These people simultaneously want to have that, and at the same time, they're sort of repelled by it. So I don't know if you see that here, but that's certainly what's been going on in the US. The fifth story is a little broader than just a profession. It's about the search for identity. It's about uh, some understanding of mediation across many different areas of practice. And mediators don't have that. They really don't. And I, you may have that experience, too. I know when I meet people uh, and they say I'm a mediator, I actually don't know what they do. I just don't quite know what they do. And part of that is because we don't sit in each other's cases and watch what's going on. We don't do post-mortems in the way physicians would do that in a hospital where they're doing you know, a, a retrospect on the case that they just had. We don't, we don't, we don't have a very public piece of this thing. Um, and I don't know if we will. I don't know if we won't, but I can tell you that there's an identity that is not really fully formed as a mediator. Um, it's not verifiable, it's not grounded. Uh, and, and there's a kind of a yearning, there's sort of a hunger for that. Now, in the US, I think we're sort of victims of our own short history in this and kind of maybe the early hubris of missionary zeal. I know when I started out, it was, I was a missionary, a mediator missionary. First church of mediation. I was ready to sort of promulgate this stuff. And I think I've just gotten more tempered about all this as I've gotten. I don't know if that's age or what it is. Um, but we've seen in the US lots of tensions, lots of cross currents, what I would call tectonic fault lines in some cases. Fierce, fierce battles at conferences. Um, that, uh, and some of those are between lawyers and non-lawyers. Some of those are between volunteers and professionals. Some of those are between generalists and specialists. And of course, between all these different schools of mediation, what my friend Bob Benjamin calls the cults of mediation, the transformatives and the narratives and so on. And uh, all of this has created a rather kind of a spider web looking piece of landscape. So you have, you really don't have something that is that unified. Uh, and the practice of mediation, as we know in this room, is very diverse. And we know it's very contextual to what the, the context is in which we're working that a matter of commercial litigation is not the same as people in a community sitting around trying to figure out health harms from a geothermal energy plant, nor are the same as the, the, the reconciliation tribunals we heard about. These are very different contexts, and I don't presume all of us do exactly the same thing. I do think there are some core things that we all do, we all try to do in different ways, uh, but those things get lost pretty fast in the differences. So we know in the US, just like here, there are family mediators and business mediators and construction mediators and community mediators and insurance mediators and school me yard mediators and we have native peoples mediators and we have just a replication of the diversity of our society in the mediation world. One of the people I talked to, very thoughtful guy, said, mediation is actually invisible. Uh, we don't really know what each other do and why we call ourselves mediators. We just don't know. And uh, we don't have a lot of good research that would tell us that. And I think probably because we don't have enough core definition for it. Now, um, and one other comment that you'll see in there, 
uh, one, of the, one of the people said there are pluses and minuses to defining mediator. It would help some of us, but not all of us. Um, now, I, I want to just sort of say a few more things about all this, and then I'll uh, let you be. And, um, I think that I wouldn't presume to tell you how mediation works or should work or has worked in England. I can barely get my head around what's going on in the US. So uh, I really leave it, I'm very open to being educated and told, no, Peter, you don't have that right. You really didn't see the, that correctly. And so I have to admit that this is a very US-centric piece, but let me share a few impressions with you. Some similarities first. Um, so as in the US, I think the mediation world in England appears balkanized and fragmented. Doesn't mean we don't get together, doesn't mean we don't have good things to talk about, but at the end of the day, we go to our corners. Uh, and you have lots of style diversity and lots of practice diversity, uh, just as we do in the US. And that's good. I think it's actually vibrant in many ways. Um, we have a, this, you have, I think, the same slow development, or maybe it's faster, of these micro marketplaces, some areas where there's very robust practice going on. Um, but we also, it sounds like you have lots of mediators who don't have enough work to do and want to do more. A few people doing a lot, a lot of people doing a little to none. So it's, it's in economics, the economic equation, that we have something where we think there's a real high need for our work. We have a high supply of people and we have low demand. <laughs> so it's, it's a strange economy, a strange mediation economy that's similar to what we see in the US. Um, as in the US, you seem to have lots of judges and retiring senior lawyers who are taking up the practice of mediation, who feel they are intrinsically qualified and who may be or may not be, uh, who have, uh, they seem to have little idea as to what they don't know uh, and not always sure that they see much value in coming to a meeting like this or going to a training session. Um, there are the, you have the same run-of-the-mill tensions, I think, between lawyer mediators and non-lawyer mediators. Uh, I don't view those as fatal. I don't view those as a problem. And the marketplace does sort out a lot of these things. Uh, you have competing organizations struggling for primacy, uh, but nobody's figured out what primacy actually means or what it looks like. Um, in both of our countries, community mediation centers seem to be a bit wobbly. Uh, they seem to be going through a period of defunding. Maybe that's just the budgetary cycle or the economic cycle. But we see some evidence that they're disappearing or get shrinking, I should say. Um, I think one of the more dangerous things I see in the US these days is the urge to substitute mediation in some cases for evidentiary hearings. I worry about that. I worry about the, the, the notion that somehow mediation can tie up lots of problems uh, as an expedited way of getting to a solution on some administrative problems. And I've seen a few of those. I've testified against those when they've t happened. And they happen more by accident, I think, than anything else, the political accidents when they occur. Um, but I do think it's pretty misplaced to somehow pull out all the existing procedures and then now somehow substitute mediation and say, if you uh, can't work it out there, you're going to go to the Supreme Court or something like that. I mean, I've seen some legislation like that. Um, in the US, we're getting close to some pretty strong, convergent thinking about confidentiality and privilege. The Uniform Mediation Act itself will do a lot to try to integrate definitions across different states and different jurisdictions. Um, 
But, and as I think in the U.S., the users haven't been in the discussion. I heard that this morning, that a desire to see the users actually helping to chart the future of the field. I think that's actually good, provided we know who the users are and we can identify them. Um, there are also some important differences between us. We have lots and lots of mediators. You have a fair number, but we're now talking across 50 states in the U.S. Uh, with at least two and sometimes three levels of courts, many of which are adopting mediation for their own reasons, uh, which makes it very hard to begin to achieve a consensus that would create either the identity or the professional uh, platforms that we're looking for. You have, I think, a greater possibility of doing that simply because of scale. Um, we know that um, uh, there's lots of different views in different systems about mediation. I could chart some of that regionally and tell you that judges and courts in the south think differently than uh, courts in the north or courts in the west. And that's not unusual in our country. It's pretty regionalized. Um, and finally, um, if you've been watching a lot of the toing and froing politically between the American left and American right and the red-blue politics, you would know that we are a pretty disputatious people. Every once in a while we come together around something, but uh, we fight hard about a lot of things. So uh, you may want to congratulate yourselves on the great intelligence of abandoning us as colonies. <laughs> um, a few last things. Um, just things that you might consider as you kind of continue this journey of trying to understand where mediation fits in society. Um, first, mediation really has a very long tail. Uh, it goes way back before the Pound Conference, which was, Michael Leitz calls that the Big Bang, which really created huge energy around community mediations and court mediations and so on. Uh, this goes back to the origins of our country. We had guilds that were using mediation methods, not arbitration, mediation for a long time. We had labor, me a venerable tradition of labor mediation codified in law. We had racial mediation uh, and in the segregation days of these, I should say the desegregation days. So mediation isn't new in the U.S. and it's, uh, I think it goes way back, way back. Um, it's a lot of what has been done tracks to some of the sociology I learned a long time ago. In particular, a guy named Everett Rogers who wrote about the diffusion of innovation. And he talked over and over again about how new ideas and new technologies and new tools rarely remain static. They adapt, they die, they are reborn in another form. Why would we expect mediation to be any different? Why would we expect it somehow to stay static and, and uh, rigid? It won't. It's going to get reinvented over and over again. Um, second, I, I take a very expansive view of the notion of mediation. And I think there are lots of versions of it. And some call it facilitation, some call it consensus building, some call it cooperative leadership. It goes by many names and it has many permutations and many adaptations. And I actually kind of like that. I like that it's taking, it's thriving in many of those places. Um, the third thing is let's assume that the correct way of mediating lies in the eyes of the beholder. And that the work of all of us beholders is in different contexts and domains and settings. And we do share some things in common across them, but they're general. They're not specific. They're very, very general. Uh, we, we know that we share a view of allowing people 
though, to have very high levels of participation in thinking about their problems and trying to untangle things. Uh, we know that we really do want to have people be the architects of their own decisions, and we want those decisions to be informed. We don't want uninformed decisions that people will regret, regret the next day. We have a common toolbox of a lot of different skills and strategies, communication strategies, negotiation strategies, problem-solving skills, and so on. Um, fourth, I think that it's a good reminder, it was a very good reminder in doing this little walkabout, that the current energy in the US and I think in England sits in these micro marketplaces. And I, don't, I think that's worth exploring further. Where is there lots and lots of activity? And where is there not so much activity? And that may present uh, opportunities for you to bring people together across those domains to explore uh, what's common and what's different. And because uh, I think that's where the juice is. That's where the energy is. That's where the excitement is. Um, Finally, I, I would like to just remind you that mediation is very old stuff. I, I, I think it goes way back beyond our Western traditions. It is embedded in many different cultural traditions uh, and just has roots in many different places. And people have been doing this for a long time, but calling it by different things. Now, I promised I would return to the theme of alcohol. So uh, let, me, let me read to you uh, what has been hailed as the second greatest short speech ever delivered by an American political figure, the first being the Gettysburg Address by Lincoln. Uh, and this was a short speech by a guy named Noah Sweat, who was a respected former judge and a lawyer and a wonderful storyteller. And he was invited to the Mississippi legislature in 1952. Uh, that Mississippi was the last state to take prohibition of alcohol off the books. We went through a spell. We had a certain insanity going on at that time. And so he was invited down because they were debating the issues and uh, in this last state to take it up. And here's what he said. He said, and tell me if this doesn't sound like a mediator. My friends, I had not intended to discuss this controversial subject at this particular time. However, I want you to know that I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take a stand on any issue at any time, regardless of how fraught with controversy it might be. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey. All right, here's how I feel about whiskey. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children, if you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I'm against it. But if, when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, <laughs> the philosophic wine, that the ale that is consumed <clears throat> when good fellows get together, that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips, and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes. If you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in an old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies, <clears throat> heartaches, and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars, which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, <laughs> our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitifully aged and infirm, 
to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I'm for it. That is my stand. I will not retreat. <laughs> Thank you very much.